feels good to be back. I, mean, I, don't, know about, I don't know whether you've been away. Um, my name's Andy, by the way. I'm the vicar. I'm part of the leadership team along with uh, H, who's just sitting here, and Pippa, who's there, and one or two others. Uh, Simon, who's there, and Ruth, who is leading the worship. Um, when you go away and then you come back, it's a good feeling, isn't it? <clears throat> I mean, I hope it is. Um, we're family, so it's good to see each other. Um, but coming back um, is also uh, the start of new rhythms, isn't it? Maybe you're starting work again. Perhaps you're here for the first time and you've got a new work situation that you're going to face. Perhaps you've got studies. Maybe you've just got to get back into the rhythm of being with uh, noisy neighbours or um, uh, you've got work colleagues that you're going to have to face that you don't get on with very well. You know how when we get into the autumn rhythm, things very quickly get uh, pressurised, don't they? We very quickly speed up and we think about activities and things to do. And it's very easy in that context to lose our focus. It's very, very easy to get <coughs> distracted by small things that become urgent things, that become enormous things. But actually, in the big picture, they're not the most important thing. That's true in church life as well. Um, I was a, a, a long time ago now part of a team um, leading a church, and uh, it was an active church, very, very busy, lots of things and lots of good things. But um, uh, there came a point where we actually felt that the Lord was saying, we need to stop everything. Why? Because we were doing so many things for God, we'd forgotten about the God we were doing it for. We were focusing on the small things and we'd forgotten the big thing. Now, as we come as individuals and as a church to the um, autumn period, we're taking three weeks out to think about what is the most important thing. What is it that God calls us most of all to do? Not all the things that take out our time, not all the things that we easily focus on, but what is the most important thing? What's the most important thing in your life? I mean, I don't mean objects, I mean objectives. And that's what we're gonna be thinking about, and of course that was a question that was asked of Jesus. So for three weeks we're gonna be looking at what we um, typically call is the summary of the law, but it's really Jesus' way of saying what the most important thing is. And for three weeks, we're going to say to the Lord and to each other, we want the most important thing to be in the most important place in our lives and in our, the life of our church. Because it's when you get the most important thing in the right place that everything else flows out of it. So we're going to listen to the reading, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. And it's the story of Jesus being questioned about the most important thing. can be found on page 1018 in your church Bible. It's from Mark chapter 12 and it's verses 28 to 34, the greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. enough. I thought we could do with a bit of a musical interlude, but I'm a bit sad because nobody was singing along. Maybe that just shows my age. Actually, I wasn't even born when that came out. That was over 50 years ago. Um, The Beatles, they got the answer right. It's true. All you need is love. All I need is to get the right code on my phone. That's it. We're we're good. Um, It's a bit obvious, isn't it? So there is Jesus. And the um, question is asked, what is the most important thing? What is the greatest thing? So many things in life, so many people, so many things to do, what's the greatest? And Jesus says, all you need is love. So the Beatles got it right 50 years ago. And I'd say a lot of things have changed between then and now. I mean, we got mobile phones, we got crazy things we didn't need in 1960. But the big question is, if our society is talking about love just as much as it was then, and if the answer, love, seems to be so obvious, what do we mean by that? I mean, we can put loads and loads of things behind that, and the truth is that um, almost exclusively in today's society, love is about emotion. It's about feelings, isn't it? In fact, um, emotions and feelings dictate not only our love, but also our decisions, our ethical decisions, very often based on the way we feel, or even our political discourse. It's about feelings and emotions, the way we relate to each other. The problem with all of that is that, uh, that love as a feeling is not actually a very solid foundation to base your life upon. It's not a very firm foundation for relationships. Look at Love Island. No, seriously. Because you can feel great one morning, but the next morning you feel awful. You can be up, you can be down. And if your life is based on lovers' feelings, you are all over the place. Now, the amazing thing is that when we turn to Scripture, we see love throughout the Bible. Love is poured out into this world as a sort of basic element of composition, of of creation. But it isn't love as a feeling primarily. In Scripture, love is not primarily emotion. It is action. In fact, it's extremely difficult to think of a biblical example of love where there isn't somewhere action involved. 
Love is the grounds, the source, the, the spring from which actions then come. But love that doesn't lead to actions is not complete love. Actually, that's the purpose of the Old Testament law. You know that the Old Testament law, as we've got it, the Torah, as the, as the um, Jews call it in Hebrew, is not so much a sort of package of legislative material, laws to obey, as it is a guidebook to living well in love. It's a way of saying what it looks like when you live in covenant relationship with God. That's how the Torah was thought of. That's how the, the Ten Commandments were offered to the people. Not you must do this in order to get there, but if you're there, how will you live? It will look like this. Because love leads to action. And so the whole Torah, the whole of the Old Testament law is actually the, the outworking of God's call to be a covenant people, to be a people in relationship with him. So when the, the, the scribe comes to Jesus and he says, what is the most important thing? He immediately relates it to the law. He says, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus in answering goes right back to the, to the to the heart of the law as the Jews understood it. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. And still today, the Jews call it the Shema. It's the verse that focuses you all in on the very heart of everything. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. The Lord your God, the Lord is one, it can be translated. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and then Jesus adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. The most important thing. Now the interesting thing is that in Jesus' day, in first century Judaism, everybody knew that. It wasn't a revelation when Jesus said that. Actually, he was, he was sort of, he was drawing on common knowledge. Jews understood that. It was well known that that was the heart of, Israel, of Jewish understanding of their relationship with God. The problem is, that between knowing it in your head and walking it with your feet, there are two completely different things there. And in Jesus' day, people knew it with their head, but they weren't walking it with their feet. And it's so easy, isn't it, when you've got like a guidebook that's given, to turn it into a set of rules. And Jesus, by reminding the people, he's refocusing them, them on, the, on the very heart of it all, which is love. And everything else follows from that. Now, here's three suggestions as to how that might impact us today here in London. We're wanting to walk out our faith, or if we don't know Jesus Christ yet, we're wanting to discover what it means to have life in all its fullness. It's all about love. But it's about learning to love God. That is the most important thing we can do in life. So what does that mean? That was the discussion in Jesus' day. They knew the verse, but they couldn't work out what it meant in practice. What does it mean to love God? Well, I'm not sure this morning that I have a clear answer for us, but I, let me give us three pointers to what it might mean to love God according to Jesus. And as he draws on that old, old tradition in Deuteronomy. The first thing is this. 
Our love for God is all-encompassing. Our love for God is all-encompassing. It is not primarily emotional. Now, I know how good it is to be caught up in worship on a Sunday morning and to think, ah, this is great. They've chosen the song I like. Or to be able to see uh, God answer a prayer and you're full of joy and love. And Now, that's all great. But loving God is not primarily and first and foremost an emotional response to God. It is a response to God that involves the whole of our lives. Jesus draws then on Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, you shall love the Lord your God with, well in in Hebrew we have three verbs or three words that describe how we should love the Lord our God. The first one is with all our heart. The word is lev in Hebrew. Now here's the interesting thing, okay? In Hebrew, the word lev refers to the inner life of a person. With all your inner life, your secret life. But it's also an intelligence word. The Hebrews thought with their hearts. In Hebrew thought in the Bible, your heart is not primarily the seat of your emotions, it's the seat of your will. It is where you think. So, love the Lord your God with all your lev, or your heart. It is a thinking word. And then it says, with all your, well, it's translated in English, with all your soul. It's actually a different word. It's nafesh, which means, nefesh, which means um, literally in Hebrew, breath. It's a physical word, okay? If lev is, is a thinking word, now we've got a physical word. It talks about your breathing, It talks, of course, it includes your emotions, it includes your desires, but it also includes all the personal characteristics that make you, you. That's your nefesh. You love God with all your mind, your heart, thinking word. With all your nefesh, it's it's a physical word. And then, This third word that is the me'od, it's translated as strength. But literally, this is what it means in Hebrew. It means very muchness. Very muchness. Most of the time in the Old Testament, this word comes as an adverb. It means greatly, exceedingly, overwhelmingly. It's an intensity word. Can you see that? So we are to love, love God with a thinking word. Heart, with a physical word, breath. And with an intensity word, very muchness. You can see how that's then translated into Greek as strength. Interestingly, in the Aramaic, it's translated wealth. In other words, everything you have at your disposal Strength is not just being strong, it's also using everything you have. And so, loving God with your meod is about making everything we have available for honoring him. That means loving him with our children, spouse, house, pets, wardrobe, our tools, our phone, our computer, our music, our money, 
our time. And you see very quickly how it, it runs into worship. Of course it does. Because this is all about orientating your life. It is all encompassing. You cannot love God and reserve part of your life that, is, that he cannot touch. Whatever else it means, loving God means all-encompassing commitment. It means turning your whole life to him. Now, the Greeks had a real problem translating all that stuff into Greek. Generally speaking, in the, in the, the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they've got three words. They translate heart as cardia. Well, that's obvious. That's, you, you know that. Actually, in Greek, it, it means the physical heart, but by ex extension, it means the, the metaphorical heart. Then the nefesh becomes a psuche, like psychological, psychology, our psyche. And then we have dunamis, which is what, where we get dynamite from, which means strength, power. But of course, that doesn't really capture everything that the Hebrew meant. And so it's very interesting. When you read this passage in the different Gospels, and it comes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every time they use different words. In fact, within our passage itself, we have two different ways of summing it up, because Jesus uses four words, not three. But then when the scribe repeats it and says, you have spoken well, Master, you must love the Lord your God, he uses different words. They both use kardia, heart, but because in the Greek mindset, heart is about emotions, Jesus adds another word in, dianoia, which means the ability to discern and choose. In Hebrew, that's, that's contained within the idea of your lev. But in Greek, it's less present, so he adds it in to make it really clear. Now, I suppose we could actually get there a lot easier by just looking at this verse and noting how many times in the verse we have the word all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's an extravagant giving to God of everything we have. Loving God should be over the top, you know. It should be extravagant. That is the first thing that should characterize our love for God. No holding back, all in. Second thing. Our love for God is outworking. Now, this is interesting. We've said already that love in the Bible is not primarily an emotional word, but it's an action word. And our love in Scripture for God is the source that wells up into the whole person. It affects who we are, and then it overflows to others in active obedience and obedient action. Now, there's no getting away from this. In Scripture, the, the fruit of loving God is obedience. It's not a surprise, therefore, that Jesus joins all the others and says, you love God, and of course, then you love your neighbor. Because you cannot love God and keep it to yourself. It is impossible to love God and not have that overflow into the lives of those around you. So important is this that Jesus in Luke 10, in the version in Luke, he goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. And at the end he says, go and do likewise. And we'll look at that next week. But here's the heart of it. We say we love God and we don't love our brother and we are liars, says John in 1 John. There's a disconnect. We love God, it means that we let that overflow into the way we live. We live obedient 
holy lives. This is what one commentator says. Christianity must evolve, evoke from the believer the same response it drew from the first disciples, a passionate desire to obey and please God. A willingly entered into discipline. That is the beginning of true discipleship. It is the beginning of loving God. Loving God means obeying his commandments. Not because we're, we're following some sort of legalistic framework, because we don't start with the commandments to do this or to do that. We start with love for God and it overflows into the commandments which we obey because it's so natural. Paul says it this way in Romans 12. Because of God's mercies, I beseech you to give your bodies, lay out your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is... <coughs> um, holy and pleasing to God, this is your act of logical worship. That's literally what it means. Logical worship. In other words, when you're loving God, it is so logical to give everything to him. And holding back deprives us of freedom. But loving God with everything we have and let it flow out in our actions is the source of true life, according to Jesus. Now, the interesting thing in Jesus' ministry is that not only does he do that and set that out as an example, but he does something extraordinarily radical because he actually says that his disciples must love him and follow his commandments. Let's sort of slip over into John's gospel. John chapter 14, verse 15 goes like this. And just think of this for, for a moment from a Jewish point of view. The heart of the, of the law is loving God and obeying his commandments. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's extraordinary. That's almost shocking. Suddenly, Jesus is the heart of it all. Suddenly, we're having to wrestle with something much, much bigger. Obeying. So love is not only all-encompassing, it is also active. It leads to obedience. And there's a third thing that I see that we can draw out of this to help us understand about love. And that is this, and it is absolutely fundamental, and what, an, what a release this is for us all. Our love for God is rooted in his prior love for us. It has to be that way. Otherwise, we fail all the time. We try and love out of our own strength, and we fail and we fall. John, the disciple, says it like this. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It starts with God. Now, actually, that's all there in Deuteronomy chapter six because the verse starts out like this. Shema means hear, listen. It begins like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It all starts with God. Our love for God can only ever be a response to his love for us. Now, it's interesting because in Hebrew, the word for hear or listen and obey is the same. You can't hear biblically without obeying. But it all starts with our listening. Do you remember Jesus? How did he begin his ministry? 
He was baptized, and as he came out of the water, he heard his father's voice saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I take pleasure. Friends, hear that voice, and love for God will flow. Because when we hear that we are loved, it switches something on inside us. And when we discover that we are loved by God, and that he loved us from before time began, something comes alive in our lives. Hear, O Israel. Israel is the name of the chosen people. It's a way of saying your identity starts when you hear God, when you listen, and when you realize that you are called. You're called. You're part of his family. You're part of his people. He loves you. And it switches something on inside us. But in Jesus, it becomes even more specific. There's something really remarkable that happens in the words of Jesus. Let's just stay in John a moment. You remember I quoted that verse? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Listen to what Jesus says. John chapter 14, verse verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Okay, got that, yeah? That's the understanding from the, from the Bible of love leads to obedience. Okay, if anyone loves me, he will, he will obey my teaching. But listen now what he says. My father will love him and we, we will come to him and make our home in him. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. Now can you see what Jesus is saying? He's taking this way further. He's saying that the heart of loving God is learning to to, to welcome God into our hearts and allow God to make his home in us. The Father and the Son by the Spirit somehow take residence in our hearts in our lives. Now you can see why, full of the Holy Spirit, it's not hard to love God, because he's already in us. Because somehow we're we're invited to be in a sort of really deep and intimate relationship, such that the Father and the Son together make their home in our lives. And it's made real by the Spirit in some strange and mysterious way. So basically, it means that the Lord takes residence in our lives, in our lev, in our heart, the seat of our thinking. The Lord takes residence in our nefesh, in our breathing, in our physical being, in our physicality. The Lord takes residence in our meod, in all that that wealth of, of things that make us that God has given us and blessed us with. All our intentions and desires, the Lord takes residence there. And as we let him take residence in us and we discover his loving ways, so we are enabled to love back. And a sort of conversation starts. And we're invited to improvise in love as we meet different situations, to learn to love others and love him more. It's like a dialogue, an internal one. So here we are, this autumn season. We're going to be tempted to focus on so many things. You got a new job? 
You're going to be meeting new people, new rhythms, trying to put on a good face. Maybe you've got to go back to an old job. Maybe you've got other things on your mind. Friends, let's welcome God into our, our, house, our house, our home. Let him, let him take up residence in every area. It's all encompassing. And as we do that, we'll discover true freedom, true worship. And we'll discover that fruit starts to be born in our lives. A bit like the parable of the sower, you know, that I was thinking about that this, this week. You know, if we want to be fruit-bearing people, if we want to be a fruit-bearing church, you know where it begins, don't you? It begins with letting the roots go deep. Because fruit only comes from seed that grows when its roots are deep. So we allow the Lord in. So little by little we grow and fruit comes in our lives. Listen to the, uh, a great quote from St. Augustine, and I'm, and I'm ending with this. To fall in love with God, says St. Augustine, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him, the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest human achievement. And in Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they come. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And we will come and make our home with him. Friends, that is the greatest thing. Amen.